Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Four verses one through 26. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujiel, and Mehujiel fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, for he was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands 
forever. So this morning we're heading on into our journey into the book of Genesis. And we've spent nine weeks now uh, in the first three chapters just really trying to get some big worldview ideas. These are giant building blocks when it comes to Christianity, the Christian worldview, the distinction between the creator and all the rest of creation, the power of his word, creating all that we know, uh, the image bearers that he made, uh, and all of these implications coming out of the, the, as the first family is instituted, the covenant of marriage, and then we go into the fall uh, a few weeks ago. And now we have take, we're taking all of that information and marching into the rest of redemptive history. Uh, this is the arc of redemptive history. Really, we could say it began in eternity past. But now as it's being played out in time, now we see redemption going forward. We have the proto-euangelion, or whatever you want to call it, the, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, right? In the curse of Satan, it is promised, the seed of the woman will, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there's this first promise that's coming. But now we sit post-fall and look for how this story is going to continue. Mankind has rebelled, right? Adam and Eve have disobeyed God's command. They've listened to the serpent. They've questioned God's goodness and plunged all of us into the consequences of the fall. And this is exactly now what we begin to see worked out. Sin almost never resides alone. It, it begins to multiply and reproduce and require more and more sin as it goes along. So our big idea this morning from our text is simply this. Even in our multiplied sin and rebellion, God does not cease his work of redeeming his people. Now, as I thought about this and wrote this out uh, this week, just this morning I'm standing back here, I'm like, that's kind of cheating because that's really the story, of, that's really the big idea of the whole scripture <laughs> from this point on out, is that even in our multiplied sin and rebellion, God does not seek his, cease his work of redeeming his people. But we begin to see, this is our big idea, I throw it out here at you up front in case you get lost in the weeds in the middle of here. This is our big idea, God does not cease his work of redeeming his people. So, we have the fall of man, right? And then all of a sudden, onto the horizon, there's this glimmer of hope. You can imagine Adam and Eve, they've heard these curses. They've heard the promised seed, this promised son is coming. And then what happens? They have a son. Cain is born. And, and Eve names him Cain. The, the word in the Hebrew sounds something like acquire or gotten. I have, I have, I have gotten, I have achieved, I have acquired a son. Does she think? This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Now we don't know that for sure. Like the scriptures don't tell us, yes, for certain this is what she was thinking. But it would seem like maybe you put two and two together. I don't know. There's this promised coming one who's going to destroy the serpent. I, have, I now have acquired a son. I've acquired this one. It's quite possible that this is what she is thinking. Abel then comes along as well. I don't know. We don't. Abel might be a twin of Cain. We don't really. It, doesn't, it just says... Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And then we don't have anything else other than just, well, then she bore Abel. So it's possible that they were twins in the womb. We don't really know. But the narrative doesn't really focus on Abel. Really, Cain is the focus of this narrative. Way more content is given to Cain than it is on, on Abel at all. But hope is on the horizon for Adam and Eve. Like I just want to set, I want to sit with that just for a moment, 
because this thing is important uh, as we look at the world and, and look at and we try to apply this a little bit to ourselves. How many times we sit on the horizon of something with great hope <laughs> to watch it fall to pieces. And Adam and Eve sit here with this great hope. Cain has been born. Two sons have been given to them. What promise, what hope they have in front of them. But it doesn't take long, right, for this hope to be broken. It doesn't take long for everything to fall apart. Cain and Abel, they bring their sacrifices to God, right? Cain, we know in the scriptures, is a worker of the soil. He tends the, the ground. He brings a sacrifice of grain. Abel is a shepherd. He's a keeper of the sheep. And he brings the firstborn of his flock to offer sacrifices to God. You, you, you read along here and you're like, where did, where did they come up with the idea to bring sacrifices? Like the, the, the scriptures don't tell us God instituted from day one, bring me sacrifices. We just know that somehow these, the scripture doesn't specifically tell us how, but we know that from the earliest moments of human history, there is this religious movement of bringing offering, of bringing sacrifice to God. There are lots of unanswered questions like that. Don't let this bother you too much. There are lots of unanswered questions like this in Scripture. Like uh, when, when we get to the ark narrative, how does Noah know which are unclean and which are clean animals? It doesn't, the scripture doesn't tell us how he knew that. He just did. It was communicated to him somehow, but we're not given recorded instances of that. Uh, like also like Abraham, uh, he's, when he gets all of this, he pays the tithe, right? And I'm like, how does he, there in, in Genesis 14, how does he know to give a tenth away? We, we don't have answers to all of these things, but there are interesting speculations. I mean, it could be that Adam and Eve, after the, the mercy of God that doesn't, and doesn't kill them instantly, uh, they raise their kids in a God-fearing home. I mean, there really is just the potential that they are still God-fearing people. And they raise their family in a God-fearing home. And remember, as Jim talked about in, in the Genesis 3 passage, pointed out to us the potential sacrifice that we saw in the clothing of Adam and Eve with garments of skin. Right, they were, they were ashamed now for being naked, and so God covers them with animal clothing. Well, that required a sacrifice, that required animal death at some point to cover their shame. And so it's possible that this sort of pattern came of giving of something, giving the life of something in an offering to God for the covering of sin, for the covering of shame. We don't really know, this is just all kind of speculation, but it is, they seem very likely though they aren't necessarily clarified in Scripture. So that sets it up a little bit. But we, why? We look at this passage, and the question often is, why is Abel's offering of the lamb or the sacrifice, the firstborn of his flock, why is it received well and Cain's isn't? And there are lots of speculations. Um, could be just that, well, livestock is way more valuable than grain, and so Abel's was just worth more money. It was a, it was a more costly sacrifice. It could be that uh, Cain just brings some of his grain. Like, it doesn't say he brings the first, uh, the first fruits of his grain. He just brings some of his grain, but Abel brings the firstborn of his flock with the fat portions, which, as we all know, are the great, except for my wife who doesn't like the fatty. I, that's the good part on, 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 a, on a steak, right? The, the, good, the good part of bringing an offering to God. We don't really have an answer to this as far as this sacrifice. But what is being indicated in the text 
is that it really isn't even the offering that's being considered. Like you, you read the text here, right? And it says, Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cable, for Cable, for Cain, I knew as these words are, for Cain and his offering, he didn't have regard. And so the order of that isn't that for, for, for Abel's offering and Abel he had regard, and for Cain's offering and Cain he had regard, the person is put first. God has regard for Abel and his offering and not for Cain and his offering. Now when we read our New Testament, we are given inspired insight into what's going on here, right? Hebrews 11.4 says, we read this, that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abraham, or Abraham, what in the world am I doing with my names here? I'm all messed now. Abel brings a sacrifice by faith to God. He comes with a right heart posture, you could say, towards God. That his sacrifice is brought. Yes, it's the firstborn of his flock. And in his joy in who God is and bringing him sacrifices, he then does bring him his best. Abel comes to God with a right heart behind his sacrifice. And so we see this contrast laid out for us in Genesis 4. The way of Cain and the way of Abel. And Scripture is going to go on. First John is go, or Jude is going to talk about the way of Cain. They even had a term. It was a, a, a certain certain phrase that they used of the way of Cain. The way of Cain is this: I perform my rituals, I do my duty. Therefore, I should be honored and respected because I am owed it. It's the way of Cain. I keep the law. I do the rules. You want sacrifices? All right. I'll gather my grain. I'll bring it to you. Now pay out what you are, what I am owed because I have done my duty. No faith involved in it. Just rigid, ritualistic, I'm doing my duty. But the way of Abel looks a lot the same. I perform the rituals. I do my duty. And I trust myself to God and his goodness. He will do what is best. The way of Cain... In the way of Abel. So at this, we see, we don't really know how they know. Again, there's a lot we don't know. It's interesting. We don't know how they knew Abel was received and Cain was rejected. We just know that they were. They were rejected. Um, something happens, communicated to them. Cain is rejected. Abel is, is, uh, is, is accepted. At this, Cain is furious, right? And look how sin multiplies. It wasn't just that he comes to God with a heart that is not in faith and a heart that doesn't love God, essentially. It is, it is not, that is not enough. That sin begins to multiply. And his anger over being rejected is not anger, as Jesus would talk about right in the Sermon on the Mount. We've preached through this, that actually anger is the same as murdering your brother. And you can see how this consequence plays out of, of not uh, fighting against the anger towards your brother, leading eventually, culminating in the death of Abel. Look how sin just multiplies around us. Cain doubles down on his sinful stance towards God and sins against his brother. Now think of the contrast here. A commentator that I read said this, where Eve had to be talked into sinning by the serpent, 
Eve, right, she has to be talked into sinning by the serpent. Cain can't even be talked out of sinning by God. <laughs> Look at these drastic differences. Eve has to be persuaded. Adam and Eve, the serpent, talking them into sin. But sin becoming so pervasive in humanity that God himself shows up and says to Cain, right, don't persevere at this. Satan is crouching at the door to devour you. And the imagery there is this ancient imagery of a, a demonic presence at the door of a, of a temple who's just waiting either to capture you once you come in or once you're in, not let you escape. It's crouching at your door. But so convinced and so committed is Cain and his sin that though it took the, the, the deceit of the serpent to talk even to sinning, Cain can't be talked out of it. And he plunges himself into sin and he murders, he murders Abel. And there's so much illustration, so much uh, comparative stuff we could go on here. We weren't going to spend much time in that. But, you know, God comes looking for Cain like he came and looked for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lie about what happened. Cain lies. I don't know what happened to him. It's not my responsibility. He lies to God about what has happened. Uh, all of these going on, uh, just these, all of this, um, all of this really good argument to flee from the way of Cain. Um, 1 John 3, 14 says this. There's lots of, in, in our New Testament, first passage, or passage, 1 John 3, 14 says, we should not be like Cain. Here's an admonition. Don't be like Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He doubled down on his sinfulness. So this is why we have this idea of the way of Cain. There's the way of Abel and the way of Cain. So that's kind of flying through the narrative there a little bit. But we sit now at a very important crossroads. What are we going to do with a text like this? What are we going to do as we march into the narrative redemptive history of God's people? What are we going to do with this? At this moment, we must decide, and this is a huge decision at this point, how are we going to read the rest of our Bibles and the rest of the story of redemption? Clearly, there's a way of Cain. There's a way of Abel. How are we going to read the rest of this narrative? Is this a story, all the rest of Scripture, is this a story of how man redeems himself, or is this a story of how God rescues his people from themselves? Is this a story of how man redeems himself or is it a story of how God rescues his people from themselves? And in a very real way, how we read the rest of the story of Scripture pivots on a bad decision at this moment. <laughs> is this a story about you becoming another Abel? Way of Cain, way of Abel. Let's take this story, let's turn it into good old moralism. You be like Abel and bring God the righteous good sacrifice. Live righteously before him. Don't be Cain. Go out into the world. Let's do it. To walk out and fail miserably. <laughs> Are we, is that what we do here? Do we turn these stories just into moral the story stories? A mots, uh, M-O-T-S, a mots uh, narrative, moral of the story narrative. Is that all this is? I mean, we'd be encouraged in a sort, I guess, to go out and reject the way of Cain 
and live and, and love God and try to serve him first and foremost. But if this is a story about being another Abel, um, we're all in big trouble. <laughs> We've already followed the way of Cain. We've already followed the way of Cain. We better hope this is not a story about you becoming a better Abel because we've all failed at that pursuit. Abel himself, I would argue, Abel himself, given enough time, failed at this pursuit. Because we look at the rest of the righteous uh, men and women of the Old Testament, none of them were perfect. All of them flawed. All of them having the traces of the way of Cain in their life, needing not to perfect themselves by their own ableness by being like Abel, but because the culmination of this story isn't about you becoming a better Abel, but it does point us to one who is a better Abel, okay? This story is not about you taking upon your back the, 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 the burden of living the way of Abel, not the way of Cain. This is a story. This is pointing us to, the culmination here is that it points us to one who is a better Abel. If it's up to you, if it's up to me, if it's up to us, we are in serious trouble. We are in serious trouble. Abel's blood was shed, and it does cry out for justice. Christ's blood has a better word than the blood of Abel. It cries out for forgiveness. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in 1224 that the people of God approach him through Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood is contrasted in the New Testament with the blood of Abel. It cried out to the ground, vengeance for what Cain had committed to his brother. The blood of Jesus cries out forgiveness for those that he shed his blood for. There is a better Abel. There is one who walked in the way of righteousness before God. It wasn't you. It's not me. It was Jesus, the righteous one who then, like, uh, like Abel, is murdered by those who hated him for the salvation of his people. Through faith in him, they are brought into the family of God, not by their own being like Abel, but by faith in the one who was a far better Abel. It's pointing us to Jesus, that we might look to him, might cling to him, and then, yes, by faith in him, adopted into his family, seeking then to walk that out, not following the way of Cain. Absolutely. But knowing that that all comes from the roots and from the foundation of the better Abel that, 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 uh, served, that um, overcame the, the works of the enemy. Francis Schaeffer writes this. He says, evangelism is a calling, but it is not the first calling. Building congregations is a calling, but it is not the first calling. A Christian's first call is to step from the line of Cain into the line of Abel. That sounds, wait a second, I thought we just said that's not. The first calling is to step from the line of Cain into the line of Abel upon the basis of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. To return to the first commandment, to love God, love the brotherhood, and then to love one's neighbor as himself. So why is this recorded? Look at, just look at this chapter again. We see this story, Abel, 
killed by Cain, uh, Cain plunging himself into further and further sin, Cain being rejected, sent away, uh, cursed by God. Another curse is dealt out here. Is it showing this just as a warning to not live like Cain? Sure. I mean, don't live like Cain. I think I can safely say that. Don't live like Cain. Is it there to help us to say, live like Abel. Approach God with a heart that, that truly loves him. A heart of faith. Absolutely. Sure. But there is more. This is a story about the sovereign power of God to work his purposes in the midst of all of the sin and all of the fallout of the human condition. This chapter ends with the birth of Seth. There is another son that is born to Adam and Eve. Think about Abel being dead. Cain is cursed and gone. Think about the broken hopes of Adam and Eve. Thinking about this, this promise that was supposed to come, but all of it being extinguished. Their son, who was so righteous and good, is dead. Their other son, Cain, is now banished and cursed by God. What now? After their shame-filled rebellion, what they produced by their own sinful decisions even, they begin to see light. Maybe it's Cain, maybe it's Abel, but then the world continues in its brokenness. Don't you imagine their hopes were, were tempered when Seth was born? It's like, oh, this is great, but <laughs> we're not batting such great. Our batting average is not so great here. I'm glad there's another son, but... I, I don't know if I should get so excited about that. I'm sure they wanted to hope, but sin had done a mighty work in their lives. Can they trust God and his promises to them? We look around at our world today and our own lives even, I think, and we ask some of the same questions. After many letdowns, after many disappointments, both with ourselves and with those around us, where are we left to look for hope? We look to the one who rules over it all to work his exact good purposes to rescue his people. The people of God, you think about the Israelites reading this as Moses writes it down, and they're, they've escaped from Pharaoh's hand through the Red Sea. They're, they're in the wilderness. They're marching. And think of all that God has done for them. And they go back to this passage, and they look how God has been faithful to his people, even in the midst of seeming like it's all gone to pieces. God is faithful to his people. He does not abandon them. He is a God worthy of trusting. He is a God worth trusting. He had not abandoned them, and he will not abandon them. Doesn't the death of righteous Abel make you think of righteous Jesus, right? What despair his followers must have felt. What discouragement those who hoped in him must have felt in the moment of his death. And yet Peter tells us, in Acts 2.23, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Where does that leave us? Does it leave us comprehending all that God is doing? No. <laughs> I don't know that it means that now all of a sudden we look around us and we say, oh, that makes sense that it went this way. Oh, that makes sense that this hard moment happened. This makes sense that this relationship did that, or this makes sense that this circumstance went crazy. Oh, this all makes sense. No, we aren't promised that all of a sudden it will all make sense. Does it leave us comprehending all that God is doing? Oh, I know he's doing something huge, and so, yes, now all of a sudden this all, I, I fit all these pieces into place like a beautiful mind or whatever, and I got all, this, all the yarns connected, and it all makes sense for me. 
Now, but it does leave us with the promise that he is doing something. We remember our big idea. Even in our multiplied sin and rebellion, God does not cease his work of redeeming his people. He is working good for his people. And it leaves us with the call to trust him. Look what he has done. Look what is unable to thwart his purposes. With all the wickedness and evil working against him, he is not thwarted in his plans to save a people for himself, for their good and for his glory. What can we do when trials confront us? Can we make perfect sense of them? Can we promise certain good outcomes? No. Can we trust our good father to care for his children? Yes. This is what he's done through history. Right from the beginning. This is not about Abel saving himself or us making a good moral decision to better our lives. This is about trusting the God who in the midst of all sorts of things breaking down is faithful to his people. He sent his son, lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve so that every one of us in this room this morning, turning from our sins, looking to him, could be adopted into his family, given the hope of eternal life, made one of his own, given this promise that God will not abandon those he has rescued, that the good work that he has begun in redeeming his people for himself, he will bring about to completion. At every turn, whether we see it, feel it or not, God is working his purposes to glorify himself and to satisfy his people with himself. So where does this leave us? Turn to the greater Abel. Turn to the, the, the one true son of God who gave his life to redeem sinners. Turn from the way of Cain, absolutely. Do not plunge yourself when you feel the pull of sin Turn from it, run from it, repent of it. Turn to the greater Abel and trust God. He is working his good purposes for his people. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this glorious grand truth of what you're doing would, would take a genuine root in our hearts. God, what we need in this life is not simple platitudes, and God, what we need is not even abstract ideas that we give a sense to. But God, I pray that this would be the, the seed, the root of faith in our hearts. That when life does go all these thousands of different ways and all of the highs and all of the lows, our ultimate hope is not in a high or a low, a thing going well or a thing going poorly. Our ultimate hope is in a God who does not disappoint his people, who is working for their ultimate good, whose in, who, whose plans cannot be thwarted. And God, we want to rest our lives there in your hands through faith in Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. Help us to rest ourselves there. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.